Malachi 2, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 16. But the overall purpose of the book of Malachi can be summarized in what God says to his people in chapter 3. He says, return to me and I will return to you. God inspired these words because God's people were losing sight of their purpose. Their hearts were far from God. They didn't truly believe that God loved them because they got it in their heads that the Messiah King, the one who would bring peace and restoration, the one whom God had been promising his people since the garden, they thought that he was going to come in their time. But he didn't. So their hearts are far from God. They're like, man, God doesn't fulfill his promises. So they're carelessly worshiping. The priests, those who would stand in the place of men and women to sacrifice for their sins, they were offering up blind and mutilated animals. What the text describes as unworthy sacrifices even for the governor. The church was going uncared for. God's people were not living for the sake of the glory of their father. And there was no love for the unsaved people around them. This is where we are in Malachi. Their hearts were far from God. God's people had become impatient with their Messiah, and so they decided to craft their own. They're trying to make peace and restoration happen in their time from their own hands because God surely isn't doing it. And so their redemptive purposes are being lost on them. So God steps in. The fact that we have this book is proof that we have a loving and gracious, slow to anger and merciful God in heaven. Because God could have allowed these men and women to sin and offer no way out because it's their free choice to sin. But he doesn't. Yes, their hearts are far from God, but he says to his people, return to me and I will return to you. Why is this important for us? Because we too grow impatient with God. No matter how sovereign we know he is, we too idolize and worship the gifts that God has given us instead of God himself. We too have hearts that are constantly far from our Father. We need to see the grace and mercy of God to us that calls us back to him, and we need to know that we can return. How? How do we return? Last week, we saw that a proper perspective in life is to see and know that God loves us. Not because of who we are, not because of what we have done, but because he has chosen to love us because of what Jesus did on our behalf. This love humbles us from pride to show that our place in this kingdom is by mercy and grace alone. And this week, we'll see that we are to take heart, not a random and thoughtless word when it comes to the fact that our hearts are far from God. Take heart to give honor to his name. We take it to heart what it means to give honor to his name. So we're going to see four connections that are kind of strewn throughout the text um, the first is we see God's command to honor his name. <clears throat> I'll repeat these a few times. God's command to honor his name. Then secondly, we see what that should look like. Third, we see how it actually is. And then fourth, we see how we truly do it. So we see God's command to take it to heart to honor his name. And we see what that should look like. And we see how it actually is. And then we see how we truly and actually do it. So let's read Malachi 2, 1 through 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, 
then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you. (coughs) Excuse me. That my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray that you would help us. We are finite creatures with more probably than finite brains. Would you help us? Would you open up our our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see exactly what you have for us in this text? And then would you change our hearts because of it. Would you transform us a little bit by degree this morning by your word, Father? And for me, if there's anything that I say that is not of you, I pray that you would make us all forget it. I pray that you would keep it from my mouth. And for any of us in here, Father, that are reading your word, that are, uh, that are thinking and pondering on your word, If there is anything in that that is wrong, Father, would you remove it from our minds? Help us to have a um, a proper perspective of you and who you are and your glory that we may properly worship that. Please help us in this time, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do we return to God? The first thing, we see God's command to give honor to his name. Starting in verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. So quick note on who the priests of the Old Testament were. 
they were chosen by God for a purpose. They were to serve God by offering up sacrifices on behalf of God's people. So people would come to the priests in their temple, and they would have a lamb or a goat, preferably a spotless lamb or a goat, um, and the priests would sacrifice the animals to cover the sins of the person every day. Every day they did this because they had to have their sins covered. But this served as a type of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this type, this picture, it was no longer needed once the sacrifice on the cross was completed. Christ, our high priest, didn't sacrifice anything but became the sacrifice on behalf of his people. And because of that death on the cross, all believers now have direct access to the throne of God through Jesus. So physical sacrifices are no longer necessary. So the question is, are there still priests today? Yes, but not like we hear or see from, um, from different churches around us, but um, <clears throat> biblical priests nowadays, it's you. It's you. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. You also, so this is to the church, the believers in this area, us. Um, you also, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Two, here's the purpose, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, Christ, through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you, here's the purpose again, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's us. That's you. That's me. The purpose of the New Testament priests, or you and me, is to offer up spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our God-given purpose on this earth is to glorify God and to share this wonderful grace with others. Is this what your life looks like? Then we see our command, and it's actually in the form of a negative in verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not, take it to heart to give honor to my name. So here's the goal of, of our redemption says the Lord of hosts, if you do not take it to heart to glorify God, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. So this is the basis for the Christian belief of salvation. Without repentance, sinful humanity does not deserve a blessing. And so a just God will not give it. We are all deserving of exactly what the just God will give to sinful, fallen short of the glory of God humans. And so God gives graphic detail about what that means for those who do not repent from sin and return to him. Look at verse three. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. This is not the main point of the text, so we are not going to make it a main point of the text, but this is simply figurative language. What happened in the days of the Old Testament priesthood is when animals were brought in to be sacrificed, they needed to relieve themselves sometimes, and so what they would do is they would scoop it up, take it outside the camp, and burn it. 
thus our eternity on our own. Rejected, removed, and burned. Take it to heart to give honor to my name. If not, there will be severe consequences. What does that mean? What does it mean to, give, uh, to take it to heart to give honor to the name of God? It means to glorify God in any and every situation or glorify God as we eat, as we drink, and whatever else we do. If this is even possible, what does this look like? Thankfully, God shows us, and this is what it should look like. This is point two. If you look at verse four, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So God chose the tribe of Levi to be the priesthood for the rest of God's people. <coughs> In the division of Israel, uh, each tribe received a portion of land, except for the Levites. God said to them, you get no land. Instead, I will be your inheritance. You rely on me solely, not through the land. And through the example of their lives, God shows the people of Israel now what this command should look like when followed. If you look at verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This is, this is again, what taking it to heart, to glorify God, to honor his name, this is what this looks like. It was a covenant of fear or honor and awe, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is the way it should be. This is what it truly looks like to glorify God perfectly. We should be peaceable. Honoring God, standing in awe of his name. We should have true and faultless instruction in our mouths that turns many from iniquity. We should guard knowledge and be messengers of the Lord. The issue is that no one here in the time of Malachi looks like this. And this is a huge issue because it takes this kind of life to not end up in eternal punishment. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then these things will happen. And this is God's point over the next eight verses to show, look, you are falling short. Here is what I've called you to in verses five through seven, and then eight through 16 is really what's happening, what's going on, how their hearts are far from him. So then we see point three, how it actually is. God gives a few different ways um, in which his people are falling short. But we begin in verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction, by your life, by what people see. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? These are rhetorical questions. We know the answer, but the answer has implications for how we should live. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Verse 11. 
Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What does that mean? How does, it, how does an entire nation marry one daughter? This is just, again, figurative language. God, Judah, God's purchased people, the bride of Christ, is unfaithful to the, to the covenant of God. So they marry or intimately worship other gods, little g gods, the idols that they have created. For you and I, no one necessarily builds little altars or calves to worship in our culture. We do it spiritually, in our hearts. When we seek pleasure and what we see on a screen, pleasure is our God, and we are worshiping her. When we seek comfort in overstuffing our bellies for any reason, Comfort is our God, and we are worshiping her. What foreign God do you tend to turn away from God for? Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, And this second thing you do, which I think is funny because there have been like 12 if we look at it. But the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. Why? Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. This is completely backward to God's kingdom, but it's very subtle. Because if we were to look and see these priests in the temple and they're crying and they're weeping, we might think, oh man, they're doing a really good thing. But it's subtle. It's, no, I'm, I'm crying because I didn't get what I wanted. It's the idea that if we follow God, good things will happen to us. They might. They might not. The point is we cannot add something to our worship and desire for Jesus. If we follow Jesus for what he can give to us, then it's not Jesus that we're following. When God divided the tribes, God said to Levi, I am your inheritance. This stripped away every material thing that they could ever have. And yet they have the greatest inheritance of all. They have glory all by faith. This is you and I now. This is you and I now. Verse 14. But you say, when God does not regard our weeping with favor because he didn't give us what we wanted, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife <coughs> to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So the text shifts from covenant keeping with God to covenant keeping within marriage. Spiritual adultery leads to marital adultery. The main point of this text is also not divorce. It is not adultery. It is not covenant breaking or any one of the sins we see here. But all of these are simply pointers back to this heart that is far from God. In a world where God is perfectly glorified, we do not see these sins. The verses end at verse 7. 
But we don't live in the world of the Garden of Eden or of verses 5 through 7. We live in the world that is Genesis 3 and on. We live in verses 8 through 16. We are utterly sinful. And we need a Savior. Because who, who can do this work? Jesus taught his disciples for close to three years. And near his end of his, of his time here on earth, uh, his, his friends, his disciples are hearing him teach about the rich young ruler. And he says, it's easier for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And so I just love how honest the disciples are. They've already been with him for a really long time up to this point, And they're like, well, who can do this then? Like, this seems really impossible. And I just love that. that in the text, who can be saved? What in the world are we supposed to do? Who can do these things? Who can be faithful in honoring to God and caring for unbelievers at all times? Who can be this way? Who can take it to heart to glorify God? Point four, how we truly do this. If you look at verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is God's end point, his end note of this little section. Do not be faithless. Or inversely, have faith. Believe in the gospel. This is simply dumbfounding that the holy and just God of the universe, the one who spoke Jupiter into being by speaking, who upholds the tides in the ocean, who knows the number of the grains of sand, who named the stars, that God, the wonder of the earth and skies, looks and sees utter filth and sin, rebellion against him, his creation turning against him, their hearts far from him, and yet he is merciful. God is just to punish and not show any mercy at all. Why would he? Yet for some mysterious reason, it delights our God to show mercy. Thank God. So how do we guard ourselves in our spirit? How do we remain faithful? to our spouse or anyone? How do we keep from using God as a means to gain something beside him? How do we keep his ways? How do we remain faithful to the covenant? How do we remain uncorrupted? How do we keep from turning away from God? How do we return back to God? How do we take it to heart to honor God and glorify him as Lord of hosts? By not doing any of those things but by the mercy of God who sent one who did all of them on our behalf. It is the kindness, it is the mercy of God that leads to repentance. And in fact, this is truly a passage about Jesus. Jesus speaks about passages like this in John 5, verse 39. He says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. This sounds great. It's like, yeah, where do we find life? In Scripture. But it is they that bear witness about me. Verses 5 through 7 are never meant to be what our lives are meant to look like in order to be saved. They point us to the only one who could do those things, Jesus. And that's the point. When we come to something like this in the text and we are utterly in despair because who can do this? Who can be saved? We look to the one, we look to the only place we can look, the one who has done it. 
And in that we rest. We believe in the gospel that when God looks at us, if we are in Jesus, then we have been covered by Jesus. And so God sees nothing but the perfection of Jesus in all of these areas. And so we rest. It is by grace, by faith. And from this rest, from this victory of Jesus on our behalf, from simply our faith, we now work and honor, we work to honor and glorify God. Because God just, he's not after obedience as it sits. He's after a new, like a whole kind of different obedience. One that comes from love and delight in God. We strive for this because we love God and want to be like him. Not because we have to or else we will burn. Jesus took care of that. Knowing that when we fail or if we succeed, we have not lost or gained anything. We can work not for anything and not to keep from anything, but we can work solely for the glory of God to honor his name. We are adopted into the family of faith by faith. And now we are on mission. We, are on, we have our purpose. We, because of the grace and mercy of God, we return back to God. And now we return back to our purpose. To maybe see other souls join us on this way. Who can you tell about the gospel? Who have you put off telling about the gospel? And even this is a work that is now a joy. Because it's something, it's about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. So we can lose everything here. It can be awkward. We can lose friends. We can lose our home if need be. This is Revelation 14, verse 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So we fear God. We glorify God. We worship his holy name in as much as we are those who believe in the gospel. And it's all by mercy. So if you're sitting here this morning and you think that you are too far gone, or if you're sitting in just utter sin, how do you return? By the mercy of your God. And it's not once you've got it figured out. It's not once you give a little bit of time to let yourself forget about it. God says, return to me and I'll return to you. Part of the reason, uh, or one reason why we take communion every Sunday is because we operate solely on this grace that we see. It is a necessity to return to the cross for us every single day to return to the cross to remember the hugeness of our sin 
verses 8 through 16 are true. They had to be dealt with, but Jesus did. The still greater, the still huger grace of Jesus covers them in his life and death. And that gives us hope. We return back to the cross and see that Jesus is no longer up there. Jesus was buried and was resurrected on our behalf. We return to the cross to remember the good news of the gospel, that the one who kept this covenant became like one who did not keep the covenant. That those who cannot keep the covenant can have a way in grace. And what a grace it is for us to be called to keep these commands of God when it is impossible for us to do it. Who can be saved? Who can do these things? It's on purpose that we may lift up our eyes to the one who did so on our behalf. What a grace. For those of you who are part of this family, you're welcome to the table as we take communion together. But if you are an unbeliever, or if you are in unrepentant sin, those two reasons, those are two reasons to remain seated during this time because you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And as you can see from this text, God does not like his name to be profaned. But if you are in unrepentant sin, God's call to you today is return to me. Return to me by the grace of God to you in Christ Jesus, remember the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, those parts of the passage that described hell, those realities were placed on Jesus for your sake. The question is, do you believe it? Do you see your need for a savior? and need help. See the mercy and grace of God. Breathe in the mercy and grace of God. The fact that you have breath in your lungs is just another grace. God's saying, return to me. During this time, if that is you, pray for God to save you. And maybe you're here this morning and you are saved, but for some reason it just feels too scary. It feels like too much to return, that, that your sin is too much. Be encouraged. Those with no faith do not worry about those things. It was while we were still weak that God saved us because it is according to his mercy, not according to us. So our weaknesses don't negate the grace of God. And the good news of the gospel is that it cannot ever. God's grace will always be greater than our sin. So for you, return to your Father. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, we admit and confess that we need this body and this blood to cover our sin of not taking it to heart to honor you. Give us a heart to glorify you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So take your time to pray through what God has given you this morning to pray through. And if this is you, take this time to return to your Father.
when you're ready, uh, the elements are at the back of the room. Bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. The good news of the gospel is that for us to return, there is nothing to do. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. And so now we have direct access to the Father. We have nothing to sacrifice. The banner that stands over every one of our lives is it is finished. And so now by the grace and mercy that did save us, it is the same grace and mercy that we return. When the disciples <clears throat> did ask, who then can be saved? This seems impossible. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. All because of the mercy of God to send his son to be the sacrifice for our souls. All because on the night when he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, Jesus broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. For the good news of the gospel, that you have sent your son on a rescue mission to save us who could not, who cannot save ourselves, who once in our lives, our hearts were so far from you Yet you came. Yet you offered mercy and grace to us. And so if at the worst moment in our lives, if it, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly, how much more so is it when we are, when we have been saved and we are walking through this life of faith and yet we find ourselves in constant sin, being bogged down by it, Yet there is grace there. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that the work to be saved is finished and there is nothing standing in the way between you and I, between us and you. And so would you, would you change our minds? Would you change our hearts to see that in our sin, we can return. It is a mysterious, it is far beyond and above what we can think or even imagine. But God, would you change our hearts to see your grace and your mercy and instead of running away from it because we don't deserve it, help us to stand firm in it. Knowing that it is by Jesus by the grace and mercy of, of Jesus that we stand.
And so this week, Father, as, um, as sin and temptation does come, first, would you show it to us as you've done uh, here in Malachi? Would you show it to us and then show us that we can return? Show us your mercy. Show us that in Jesus there is no wrath left for us. Help us to see your kindness and your mercy that helps us to repent, that helps us to turn back to you. Give us a new heart, one that does honor and glorify you because you absolutely deserve it. In all of this, God, we give you the praise and the honor and glory as much as our hearts can. And even though there are parts of it that do not want to, God, we glorify you. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to praise your name and your name alone? We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.